now in the Gospel of John, chapter 5. And today we're coming to the third miracle that's found in this Gospel. And this is another one of those chapters that deal with water. Remember we showed you how each chapter deals with water. And this deals with water in a, in a pool. It's called the poolside healing. And so here's how we're going to divide our study this morning. Verses 1 through 4, I'm going to give you the setting. The setting of this miracle. Then in verses 5 through 7, I'm going to give you the situation that Jesus discovers that needs to be solved. Then verses 8 and 9, we'll look at the solution, what Jesus does about the problem. And then finally, verses 10 through 18, we have a big controversy uh, that focuses on the Sabbath. Okay, So we have a setting, the situation, the solution, and the Sabbath controversy. So let's look at the setting. And we'll look at verse 1. And first of all, Let's look at the setting with regard to the calendar, okay? So look what it says in verse 1. After this, after what? After Jesus has left Galilee, and he's probably up there for a month or two. Uh, we don't have all the details, but he's probably spent a significant amount of time. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. There were three pilgrim feasts the Jews celebrated. One was the Passover, one was tabernacles, and the other was Pentecost. And if you were within a certain region, a certain area, you had to travel, you had to become a pilgrim and travel and celebrate that feast. So we're not sure which one of these feasts it is, but that's, it's on the Jewish calendar of feasts. Then what you have is the setting as far as the map is concerned. Look what it says in verse 5. It says, and Jesus went to Jerusalem. So he's going from the north down to the south, about 80 miles, the capital. And now there was, in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, only time it's ever mentioned in the Bible is Sheep Gate, but evidently that's the gate into the city where you would bring in sheep. Maybe to be slaughtered, maybe for sacrifices. But there was, in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool which is called in the Hebrew Beth, Bethsaida, having five porches. Now, the name of the pool actually means the house of outpouring. Beth means house of, like Bethlehem, house of bread. This is house of outpouring. So it has a name. It's, it's significant. Something they, they somehow think that this pool is a place where there's an outpouring of some kind. And we're going to see that it's an outpouring of healing that they usually associate with this pool. We also know that it has five roofs or porches there. And a porch here is a portico. And that's a porch that has a roof that protects you from the elements, whether it's the sun or the rain or the snow, which they even have in the area of Jerusalem at times. We know exactly where this pool is located. It was... Uh, people knew where, where it existed all the way up to about 330 A.D. And then suddenly there's no more record of it. But it's been excavated, built over top of it. Uh, it was excavated last century. And we know that this pool was located northeast of the temple. And it was 220 feet wide. Now think about that. Think of this room, for example. Imagine how big this pool is. 220 feet wide and 315 feet long. 
bigger than a football field. And it was divided in two long ways. On one side where the women sat, and on the other side is where the men sat or went into the pool. And there was a uh, superstition around this pool. Uh, they believed that the pool had curative powers, uh, like hot springs. They used to think the hot springs or Eureka Springs had curative powers. And they believed that this pool here had curative powers. And originally it was used by the pagans long before Jews came here. And it was dedicated to the Roman god or Greek god Asclepius, which was the god of healing. And so they would bring all these people to this pool this, where there's these curative waters. And look what it says in verse 3. In these, that would be in the porticos, lay a great multitude of sick people. How sick were they? Blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. Now what is the moving of the water? First I'm going to give you the facts, how the water moved, and then I'm going to explain the myth of how they thought the water moved. Okay? So here's the fact. Uh, we know that this pool was fed by a stream located in Bethlehem, an underwater stream fed this pool. Bethlehem was six miles away. And occasionally there would be a release of air bubbles from the stream and it would come up and it would move the waters. That's the facts. Okay? So that's what it means, the moving of the waters. Okay? Look at verse 4. Now we're going to come to the myth. John the writer says, For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now, the Gospel writer John just describes the myth as the people believed it. He doesn't try to debunk the myth. He just says, this is, this is what they believed, and he's telling you the story. And notice it says that an angel, some translations don't use that, have that in there, but the New King James says an angel would go down into the water. And uh, the, uh, the pagans believed it was an angel simply means messengers. Uh, an angel from this god Asclepius, a messenger from that god would be sent down to stir the waters. And if you could get into the waters first, because of that divine touch, you'd be healed. And then the Jews eventually started going to this pool, and they would just they just assumed that it was an angel of God that would stir the waters. But whatever the reason, we have the fact and we have the myth. They thought when the waters got stirred, they would be healed. It was sort of like an ancient, uh, you know, grotto, like uh, the fountain of lords. And, uh, but this was the, the superstition. So people with incurable diseases would flock to this place. Now remember how large this thing is. So I want you to use your imagination. I want you to think for a moment what it would look like with literally hundreds and hundreds, maybe, maybe even a thousand people being brought there every day with an incurable disease, just waiting for the water to start, hoping that they could get somebody to put them in that water. Because if you were lame or you were 
paralyzed, you couldn't get into the water yourself. Dolly Culp has somebody helping her right now at her house. She said, my care worker is incapacitated. Guess what she needs? Somebody else to help her. These people needed somebody to help them get into the water to be healed. That was the superstition, okay? So you still with me? Okay, now let's look at the situation. Verse 5. That was the setting. Now the situation. Verse 5. Now a certain man, see in verse 3, great multitude, look at verse 5, a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. So what happens is the, can the camera lens switches. And it switches from a wide angle where you see the multitudes of the pool to a zoom lens and it zooms right in on one person. And just called a certain man. We're not given the man's name. Okay? And look how long he's been sick. What does it say in verse 5? 38 years. Now this is very strange. Because the gospel writer, John, tells us, I don't even know the guy's name. Just a certain man. But guess what he can come up with? He remembers exactly how long he's been sick. 38 years. So something's a little interesting. This number 38 has some significance, I think. And John's using it in a very significant, in a very symbolic way. Uh, 38 years would be that the man, if it, we take it literally, that the man was sick his entire adult life, maybe even longer than that, you know, depending on how old he is. Okay. But the number 38 is only used one other time in the Bible. And it's found in the book of Deuteronomy. I want you to turn there, and I think it's worth looking at. Usually we don't turn to a lot of scriptures, but we'll turn to Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then the fifth book, Deuteronomy. And when you get there, turn to chapter 2. Deuteronomy chapter 2. Now I'm not going to read the chapter. I'm just going to read you one verse and give you a little bit of background. I'll read you the one verse when you get to Deuteronomy chapter 2. I want you to look down at verse 14. Deuteronomy chapter 2 and verse 14. <laughs> Only time the number 38 is used in the Bible except in John 5. Deuteronomy 2.14. And the time we took to come from Cadiz Barnea until we crossed over into the valley of Zered. Look at this. It was 38 years. <laughs> Only time consumed. Until the generation, 38 years, until the generation of the men of war was consumed from the midst of the camp, just as the Lord had sworn to them. So what happens here is that the entire generation of People who had come out of the Exodus, come out of Egypt in the Exodus, that entire generation, 38 to 40 years, died. And Kadesh Barnea was where, you know, the spies went in and they spied the land of, of Canaan. And 38 years um, represents an entire generation. And it signifies a length of time so long that there's no one left to remember back then. Think about that. Everybody's dead. 38 years. And there's no one left that can remember and look back 
on the Exodus itself. Now, when you go to the Gospel of John, we have this man in verse 5 who is sick for 38 years. I think John is saying, you know something? He's been sick longer than anyone can remember. That's what he's saying. Now, it could be a literal 38, but I just don't I think John would have known the man's name before he'd have known the, the length of time. So I think he's just using a, a figure of speech to say, this guy's been sick longer than anyone could remember. Does that make sense? So it's either literal or it's figurative, and we can debate that. Now look at verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition, see, a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? Now you would think the answer is a no-brainer, wouldn't you? I think the answer is yes. <laughs> what do you think I'm doing here? Yes, I want to be made well. The man doesn't answer the question. And this will be good for you lawyers. You understand that. The man avoids the question. Look what he says. You want to be well? He doesn't say yes. Look what he says. Verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred. While I am yet coming, another one steps in before me. He doesn't answer the question. The question is, do you want to be well? And he doesn't answer the question. He goes into this big rigmarole. And uh, I watch these detective shows on television. <clears throat> detective brings in a suspect. He said, did you kill Mary Jones? Where were you at 9 o'clock? And the guy said, why would I want to kill Mary Jones? She was a good friend of mine. We actually dated. Why didn't he just say, no, I didn't kill Mary Jones? <laughs> when they get into this explanation, you know they're avoiding the question. And this guy is, this is, there's something going on here. It's more than meets the eye, I'm convinced of that. Okay. So, but he has been sick for a long time, and that's the situation. Now let's look at the solution. Okay. By the way, let me ask you this. Do you think he wants to be healed or not? Okay. We're going to find out whether he does or not. Because at first you say, of course, anybody who's been sick for 38 years would want to be healed. Watch what, how this thing plays out. Okay, look at the solution. Verse 8. Jesus said to him, after the man's fooling around, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. Notice Jesus is not interested in the superstition. The guy gives him the whole explanation. Jesus just ignores the superstitious aspect. And he gives three imperatives, three commands. Rise. Commands him to do it. Take up your bed and walk. Now look at verse 9. And immediately the man was made well. Just at the word of Jesus. Before the man actually did anything, he was made well. Just by Jesus saying that. Okay? And then look what happens. On the basis of Jesus' word, before the man does anything, he's, it says in verse 9, immediately the man was made well. Do you see that? Immediately. Then look what follows in verse 9. He took up his bed and he walked. Okay. So now he gets up because he's been made well. You can't get up until you're made well. Would you agree with that? He now gets up and he, he starts to walk. Okay. Now last week we saw a miracle of a man's son. Remember this? Was it last week? A man's son who was sick 20 miles away. So we discovered 
that distance is no barrier with Jesus, and neither is duration of sickness a barrier with Jesus. It doesn't matter whether you're 20 miles away or you've been sick for 38 years, that's not a big deal as far as Jesus is concerned and healing. Now, as I was doing my research, I discovered, and this is something I didn't realize, that one-fifth of all the material in the Gospels deals with healing. One-fifth. And uh, I started thinking, isn't it amazing if one-fifth of the material, and that's more than the resurrection, you know, that's more than anything else, more than the virgin birth, you know. it's amazing to me that the church has literally ignored 20% of the Gospels over the centuries. I think just on the amount of the volume of the material, we should be giving more emphasis to this issue of healing that we have. Which uh, we have to ask ourselves, why is that? Okay? We need to pay more attention to these healing passages. Now look at the end of verse 9. And this is what we call an uh-oh moment. End of verse 9. It should be read like this. And that day was the Sabbath. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. That doesn't sound good, does it? Put right at the end of the sentence. Okay? So now we have the come to the Sabbath controversy. This is our last part. Okay? So look at verse 10. The Jews there, and that when it, when you see the phrase, quote, the Jews, everybody's a Jew. Jesus is a Jew, the man's a Jew. When you see the phrase the Jews, it usually speaks of Jewish leadership. The Jews, who have some sort of official you know, ability to speak on behalf of the people. The Jews, therefore, said to him, who was cured, and notice he is cured, it is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. They didn't say, praise the Lord, weren't you that guy that's been sitting there all the... My father used to tell me about this guy who sat at this pool. Hallelujah, you're healed. Right? No, they don't say any of that. They said, you've broken the fourth commandment. You're carrying your mat. What's wrong with you? You know the law. So again, as we've seen so far in the Gospel of John, we have uh, categories. And we have one category of people who place themselves under the law. Okay, and the law is so important. And then we have another category, and that's Jesus and the people he represents, who, in a sense, are uh, putting the law aside. Because the law is going out, and grace is coming in. Okay? So we're going to see that as we look through this passage. So they say, you shouldn't be doing that. You've broken the fourth commandment. So now we have the man's response. And I love this. In verse 11, he said, uh, He who made me well said, take up your bed and walk. He passes the buck. Don't blame me. Blame the guy that healed me. He doesn't want to talk. <laughs> Sounds like Adam, doesn't it? In the garden. That woman you gave me just one person. Don't hang this on me. Now, the fact that Jesus is healing, and the fact that he passes the buck and he rats out on Jesus, he doesn't know his name, but you'll see. Uh, it's not a good sign, is it? This is not a good sign. Okay. Uh, I mean, I could reverse it and say, man, if this guy hadn't healed me, I wouldn't be walking and carrying my mat. He'd say it that way. He didn't say it that way, but he says, man, it's that guy that healed me. He's the one that told me to do it. So he tries to pass the buck. So now the questioning continues. Look at verse 12. Then they ask him, well, who is the man who said to you, take up your 
dead and walk. But the one who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. The guy doesn't know. And I think this is sort of significant and a little odd itself. If somebody heals me, I say, hey, buddy, what's your name? <laughs> you know? you know, I would want to thank him, wouldn't I? He doesn't even know who it is. He's just, he's been healed, and he's just like, he gets up and he walks and does what Jesus says, but he doesn't, you know, really try to find out who Jesus is or any of this. So now we come to the second encounter that Jesus has with the man, sort of a happenstance encounter, if you will. And that's found in verse 14. It says, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. And he said to him, This is very interesting. Look. Behold. See. Look. You've been made well. You've been healed. You've been cured. Why would you say that? Of course the man knows he's healed. Why would you say, if I've been crippled for 38 years and I'm healed, I, why would, and Joe healed me, he wouldn't come up and say, hey, look, you've been healed. I said, no, you did it. Right? But Jesus has a point. He's pointing out to the man, hey, you're different than you were 10 minutes ago. You are cured. You have been healed. Take a look, buddy. You've been healed. Right? Now look at the end of verse 14. Look what he says next. Actually, the middle of verse 14. He said to the man, what? Sin no more. Well, when did the man sin? Well, if you ask the Jews when he sinned, when he took up his bed and walked, he just broke the law. You think that's what Jesus is talking about? Don't think so. And then he gives a warning. Look what he says. Sin no more, lest a what? Worst thing come upon you. What could be worse than being crippled for 38 years? Well, in John's Gospel, the worst thing is judgment. You're going to face judgment. And so, uh, Jesus gives him a warning. So, don't go and sin anymore. Now, I don't think this guy was a great sinner. All he did was sit by the poolside you know, from morning to night. So, Jesus is referring to another kind of sin here. And what's the sin that Jesus says? Don't do it again. Well, watch what the man does as soon as Jesus says that and gives him the warning. Look at verse 15. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. He racks out on Jesus. So I've got his name now. I think that's the sin. <laughs> the sin is he's going to pass the buck and he's going to try to get Jesus in trouble. And the man makes a beeline to the Jews and he commits an act of betrayal against the very one who healed him. Just like Judas Iscariot. This is the Judas Iscariot man. He has the spirit of Judas Iscariot if there ever was one. He goes and immediately, to save his own skin in a sense, betrays Jesus. And look at the result. For this reason... The Jews persecuted Jesus. Uh, this is the turning point in Jesus' ministry as far as the Jews are concerned. It's at this point in John's Gospel that Jesus begins to be persecuted. Up until that time, he wasn't really persecuted. 
So now they begin to persecute him. And not only that, did they persecute him, look what else they tried to do. They sought to kill him. Why? Because he had done these things. What things? Good things. Healing things. Miracles. When? On the Sabbath. <coughs> they see him as a lawbreaker. And uh, they're angry that Jesus does it on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them. Now we're going to have Jesus contradicting these guys. And said, you know something? You got the Sabbath all wrong. You're interpreting the law all in the wrong fashion. Look what he says in verse 17. Jesus answered him, My father has been working until now. And I have been working. I'm about my father's business. And guess what? My father's been working. Now, if you ask the Jews that God was working, they would say, No, God's at what? At rest. Because God created the world in six days, and then he did what? He rested. See, that's the law. Six days he created and he rested and he established the law, the fourth commandment, that you can work six days and then you must rest on the seventh. That's the law. That's the law of the old creation. Yes, he created the old world and he rested. But guess what? Now he's creating a new creation. There's a new creation, a kingdom. See? A new age in which he is formulating. And he's still creating that new thing. He's doing it. Remember what he said to Nicodemus? He said, Nicodemus, if you want to enter this new creation, the kingdom of God, you have to be what? Born again, which means born from what? Above. Well, guess who's birthing you into his kingdom? God. God's working. See? God's healing through Jesus. See? God's working in the new creation. So what you have is you have two realms in which people are operating. One realm, you're operating under the law, which was good for the old creation. Under the new realm, they're operating according to a different law. The law of Christ. The law of love. You do what love demands. Two people standing side by side, operating under two systems. One's the old, one's coming in, which is the new one. It would be like, uh, we have a daylight saving times and we have a standard saving time. Standard time. So, let's say I'm operating under daylight saving time. And let's say, right now it is, uh, let's say 11.40, just typically, typically under, uh, let's say it would be, uh, it'd be 12.40 if it were daylight savings time. 12.40. And Joe, he operates under standard time. With Joe, it would only be 1140. Here we are standing side by side and our watches are different. An hour different. So I say, you need to be here at a certain time. And guess what? He shows up at a different time. We're using the same language, same vocabulary, but we're operating under two different realms. I say, Joe, we're not under standard time anymore. Guess what we're under? Daylight savings time. Jesus says we're not under the law anymore where we have to keep the fourth commandment. We're under a new creation, a kingdom ethic that we're following. And so it's going to be out with the old and in with the new. Therefore, look what it says in verse 18. The Jews sought all the more to kill him. You 
thought that was bad before when the guy ratted on me. Now they're trying to kill him even more. Why? Because he not only broke the fourth commandment, but he also says that God was his father, which they interpreted that he was making himself equal with God, which means blasphemy. Now they're trying to get him because he's broken two laws. One, he's broken the fourth commandment, and he's committed blasphemy, making himself equal with God. And uh, that's just the opposite of what Jesus was doing. Jesus is a, isn't a man trying to be God. He's a God who became man. Isn't that right? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, the name was Jesus. He's not a man trying to be God, which would be blasphemous. He was God condescending and becoming a man. And uh, many of us, I would think, are, are like the Jews. And I think this is our problem with the healing issues, in many ways. Uh, we're under this false thinking that God created the world, and uh, now he rests and he doesn't do anything. He only does spiritual things, which of course isn't working. Spiritual things are not working. And so we're like deists, who believe that God created the world, he wound it up, and he lets it wind down, and he doesn't do anything. See, that's how they were operating. And I think many of us operate like that. And Jesus says, no, God is active in the world right now. And I am doing my Father's business. Jesus is his messenger. And the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus at his baptism and abided with him, John the Baptist says in chapter 1. And therefore, Jesus is now going about doing God's business. And wherever the Spirit abides... God is working. And it was Jesus' intent that after he ascended into heaven and he poured out the Spirit, that the Spirit would abide in the church. And whatever church the Spirit abides in, you'll see God working. But we don't see God working in a lot of churches. I remember the saying, the saying that the Pope, it was the Pope and St. Augustine were having a discussion. And they were reading, I think, studying Acts 3 or 4, where Peter says, Silver and gold have I none, but what I have I say unto you, rise up and walk. Remember that when he heals the man? And the Pope was reading that passage. He looked at St. Augustine, and he says, No longer can the church say, Silver and gold have I none. He said, Look. And Augustine said, And no longer can she say, Rise up and walk. Because our emphasis is on money rather than on spirit. We need to see what God's doing. And we need to make ourselves available for what God does. And so here we see the setting. We see the situation. We see the solution. And we see the Sabbath controversy. And now they are about to kill Jesus. And that's what they do to anyone who tries to follow Jesus and do what God wants them to do. Next week we'll pick up at verse 19 and we'll look at this next section. In John's gospel, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, your word. You are a big God. All we need is little faith. The faith of the size of a grain of mustard seed. And we can say to the mountain, whatever problem it is, be thou removed. And it will be cast into the city. 
Lord, we know that you were using a figure of speech there but and using hyperbole, but you were telling us that nothing is too great for you if we just submit and trust you. Oh, Lord, we brought our prayer request to you this morning. Uh, we bring our lost friends before you this morning. We bring our church before you this morning. We bring our families before you this morning with great needs. Oh, Lord, we ask that you move in the lives of our friends and our church and our relatives. And help us to be part of doing your business. We know that you're not resting, and neither should we be resting. Lord, help us to be faithful to that goal in Christ.